John chapter 14. And uh, some of you may be here uh, because a friend or family member gave you one of these invitation cards that laid out the sermon series we're going to be going through over the course of Easter week this week, Holy Week. Um, if you have intended to hand some of these out and haven't, let me encourage you, they're still on the windowsills uh, throughout the church building. We encourage you to invite your neighbors for uh, next Sunday's gathering. But normally, uh, on Holy Week, we think about Palm Sunday, which Pastor Dom mentioned uh, this Sunday, and then Good Friday, where we'll meet this Friday uh, to celebrate the cross specifically, and then Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, next Sunday. Normally, we'll walk through the history of uh, what happened on those days. And this week, we're doing things a little bit differently, and that I'm really hoping to focus on some of the sayings of Jesus that particularly introduce us to who He is and what He did. And so this morning, we'll be looking at how Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Friday, love to see you here Friday evening, 6.30 p.m., we'll be thinking about how Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. So satisfaction, really in a hungry world. And then Sunday morning, we hope you'll be back and then also bring friends, maybe come early, uh, because people come out of the woodwork for Easter. We'll be thinking about Jesus saying, I am the resurrection. Not, not I do a resurrection, or I had a resurrection, uh, but I am the resurrection. Uh, this morning, let me read to you from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. But I'm just going to focus in on one verse. So I'll give you a little context here, but I'm going to keep it simple and focus in on one verse, John 14, verse 6. And you can notice it when we get there. But for a little context, we'll read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, you, also, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? Here's our verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Me. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. But from now on you do know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let's pray. Father, would You come now 
And for those who don't know the Gospel, we pray that You would not only introduce them to the Gospel, but cause them to believe the Gospel. For those who do know the Gospel, we pray, Lord God, that You'd rescue us from losing our first love and help us to be reacquainted and even in love with the Gospel again. I pray You'd anoint me by Your Holy Spirit to both engage and to persuade Your people and those who are not Your people to trust You. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The United States of America is currently in the midst of a fatherhood crisis. According to the National Fatherhood Initiative, not a Christian organization, one in four children is being raised without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. And the results of that reality, not having fathers in the home, are devastating. Some of you know this very personally. The National Fatherhood Initiative you can find this kind of data from multiple sources, reports that kids who grow up without a father in the home are four times more likely to live in poverty. They're more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to go to prison, more likely to commit crime, more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to commit suicide, twice as likely to die as infants, twice as likely to suffer obesity, twice as likely to drop out of school, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. A father's absence is devastating to a child. A father's presence does not guarantee success. It does not make life easy. But statistically, it reverses all the trends I just mentioned for the better. But the presence of fathers doesn't just help children. It helps moms, too. The Institute reports that mothers who live with involved fathers are more likely to receive prenatal care, less likely to smoke during pregnancy, they experience healthier births, lower postpartum stress, lower postpartum depression, lower parenting stress, enjoy more leisure time, and higher marital satisfaction. I told Christy this week, you smoke less and enjoy more free time because I'm around. All around us in America, we can see the results of absent fathers. But many of us have felt this reality on a personal level too. I'm, although I'm thankful to know and love my own father, still because of sin and divorce, I spent years of my childhood only seeing my father occasionally. I saw, I saw my mother's stress levels go up from raising us without dad around. I lived through my own season of poverty. I was on welfare in Canada when I was 18 years old. My life was full of rebellious behavioral problems. I was actually required in middle school to leave $20 in the principal's office so they could send me home in a cab when they needed to. And I didn't get the $20 back at the end of the year because they needed to send me home. I got involved in criminal activity. I was arrested for shoplifting and later was charged and convicting, convicted of systematically stealing from my fellow employees to fund my drug habit. I obviously abused drugs and alcohol. By the time I graduated from high school, I was 
pretty much high first thing in the morning and then last thing before I went to bed. At one point, I dropped out of high school. And my trouble with the law looked like it might land me in jail, which was a pretty big deal because my dad was the warden of a jail. Now, of course, I'm to blame for my own sin, but my father's absence clearly shaped the pattern of that sin in ways that are pretty statistically verifiable. How do you think about these facts? How do you think about the impact that absent fathers have on their families? The presence of fathers leads to happier children and happier moms. Well, if you look at that uh, from an evolutionary point of view, maybe you're coming from a strictly evolutionary point of view, you could, you could look at it like that and you could say, well, that's just an evolutionary byproduct. Obviously, the best way to raise, the, raise these kind of evolved monkeys is to have a daddy monkey and a mommy monkey around. And if you have the evolutionary mom and dad around, then you get better results. Now, evolution might be enough to say, okay, we can handle the stats. We can see how the absence of the male figure contributes to the detriment of the species. But even though evolution might be able to deal with the facts, evolution can't give you anything to change anything. Right? I mean, it's not very motivating to say, be a better monkey. That's hardly a motivational speech that will change the masses. If you're looking at this from a feminist point of view, you might need to rethink a few things too. Where are the feminists saying that the best thing for a woman and child is the presence of an active and present father? We hear a lot about toxic masculinity in our day. We don't hear nearly enough about life-giving masculinity that's good for both women and children. If you look at these statistics that I'm going through from a political point of view, it might make you change a few things. You might reconsider a few things. If you look at them from a political point of view, you might say, hey, we should be having taxes and laws and criminal um, codes that incentivize fatherhood. Do we tax and penalize two-parent families? Do we make laws that make divorce as easy as cooking a Pop-Tart? Are longer sentences always the best solution to crime? Is it really the best thing to do to pull a dad out of his home for 20 years? If you look at these things from a cultural point of view, you might reconsider a few things as well. If you just look at the impact of fatherlessness from a cultural point of view, it might change a way, might change what we value. It might make us say that, hey, glorifying pop starlets who are all dolled up like a porn movie waiting to happen, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe such women should be regarded not as heroes of women's liberation, but as homewreckers who are destroying the very foundation of civilization. And maybe we shouldn't glorify male rock stars or hip-hop stars who boast in how many baby mamas they've left in their wake. Maybe we should rethink making deadbeat dads into celebrity icons. Maybe we should rethink all of those things. The statistics about fatherhood give us lots to chew on. They challenge evolutionary thinking. They challenge feminist thinking. Challenge your political thinking. Challenge your cultural thinking. And there's wisdom to be gleaned from looking at these stats from all of those angles. But I think we've not faced the facts from the most important angle, the theological angle. 
the biblical angle. From a Christian perspective, the idea that fatherlessness would hurt people in very practical ways is really expected. It's not surprising or stunning at all. We know that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers are told to train their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so it's not surprising that if you yank the father out and you remove that nurture and remove that admonition, the consequences are devastating. And the result is angry, frustrated children. It's not surprising that a father who's absent like a teacher who does not show up for a classroom, winds up with the same kind of result. If you remove a teacher from a classroom, what do you get? Chaos. And from a Christian perspective, a husband who's called to nourish and cherish his wife, well, it's not surprising that when you take that husband out of the picture, you wind up with women who get pregnant, and then they're left malnourished, anxious, uncherished, and less able to climb out of discouragement and despair. None of this is surprising from a Christian point of view. This is basically like, if you remove Christ from the picture, things go bad. None of it's very surprising. But the crisis of fatherlessness, the crisis of fatherlessness is not just cultural, a culturally insightful observation. It displays a deep theological truth our lives never flourish when we are separated from our Father. Do you hear me? Our lives never flourish when we are separated from our Father. And I don't just mean uh, when we are separated from our earthly fathers. I don't mean that when we're just separated from our earthly fathers, then we don't flourish. There are many single moms who are raising kids who are defying the statistics. There are many who haven't had any of the advantage I just spoke about and have gone on to live successful lives. No one should hear what I'm saying about a father's absence and doom themselves to how they could never live a flourishing life. What I'm suggesting to you is that what's happening on an earthly level, take fathers out and things go downhill, is just a parable of what happens to us on a spiritual level. No relationship with the father results in less and really no human flourishing. It's really because all of us have been divorced from God the Father. It's because all of us are estranged from God the Father before we know Christ. That really there's no ability for us to flourish in this life. We wind up in slavery to all kinds of sins and self-destructive in all kinds of ways. And the reason is because we're estranged from God. And let me be clear, it's not because God is a deadbeat dad or an absent father of any kind. It's because we are all human beings, people who've distanced ourselves from Him. So it's with this in mind that I think we should think about Jesus' words in John 14, 6. It's this in mind. With this idea that if you separate people from God the Father, people go downhill. When you separate people from God the Father, there is just an absolute chaos that comes to the soul. 
And it's with those kind of thoughts in our mind that we should come to Jesus' words in John 14, 6, where He says, I am the way and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Me. What's He doing? He's showing the way to be reconnected with God the Father. Now listen, there are people in this room who find fatherhood impossible. They cannot seem to get together the kind of commitment and integrity and care for others that would be required to serve another family. There are people who can't get this together. I want to suggest to you that is very likely because you are not connected to God the Father. Because when you know God the Father, you find the resources in His Word and from His Spirit to actually father others. There are others whose lives are a complete mess. You find yourself a constant, constant slavery to sin. You quit one sin and start another, and you're immersed in that sin. Why? Because you're disconnected from the one who would have that firmness and gentleness to grow you and strengthen you and lead you to walk in paths of righteousness. And so Jesus' words here are no idle words for us. These are massively important words. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Through Me, you can get back to God. Through Me, you can have a relationship with a God who's as firm as a brick wall and as gentle as a feather. You can have a relationship with God who provides everything we need but never panders. Who can deliver you out of suffering but doesn't always deliver you out of suffering because He knows that strong children are not delivered out of every single trial. They're guided through every single child. Jesus is saying, I'm the way back to God the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Me. Now it is my deep desire that we be a people who know God the Father intimately. That we're aware of how God the Father is shaping us through His Word minute by minute as a congregation and as individuals. And it's my desire that if you don't know God the Father, you've got some vague ideas about God or some religious ideas, or you just even reject the idea of God at all, that you would come to not only know there is a God, but that God is eager to be your Father. To lead you. But I find, and maybe you've found this too, that there's, about, there's a number of lies that keep people from embracing God the Father. There's a number of lies that keep people from grabbing onto Jesus as the way back to God the Father. And I want to address three of them this morning. There's three lies that keep people from running back to God the Father. Here's the first one. All roads lead to God. All roads lead to God. I'm sure you've heard that. It's everywhere in the culture in which we live. All roads lead to God. And it's a religious half-truth. It's a religious half-truth that there are all kinds of different religious roads, but they all have the same destination. They'll all land you back with God. Now, when I was coming of age uh, in my early 20s, this kind of relativist thinking was the absolute rage. Everyone was embracing this like it was going out of style. The idea that the idea that Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and spiritual people of all kinds uh, are all winding up in the same place. All these roads lead to God. Well, there's a number of problems with this idea. 
And the first one is God. The first problem with the idea that all roads lead to God is if you think for all of three seconds about who God is, the very statement, all roads lead to God, just winds up being totally nonsensical. I mean, which God? In the Hindu religion, we're all one with God. We're all one with Vishnu. All the gods are momentary apparitions that eventually will cease to be anything. There, there is no ultimate personal reality in the universe. Do all roads lead to that God? Or do they all lead to the Mormon God? In the Mormon religion, God the Father is a God with a body. God the Son is a God with a body. Mother God is a God with a body. And the Holy Spirit is God but doesn't have a body. And if you're a faithful Mormon, you can be a God. So do all roads lead to you or Mother God or God the Father or God the Son? Which God are we even talking about when we say all roads lead to God? Or if we just reduced it to the monotheistic religions, the religions where there's just one God, Judaism, Islam, uh, Christianity, do all roads lead to that God? Is, it, is monotheism all that's true? And just Mormons are going to get there, and, or sorry, Muslims are going to get there, Jews are going to get there, Christians are going to get there because we're all going to God? Well, just think for a minute about the Muslim God. The Muslim God is a, is a solitary God. Before Allah created anything, there was nothing. That means that for eternity past, before Allah created anything, Allah had no relationships with anyone. He is a fundamentally unrelational being. He had no relationship with angels, no relationship with people. The first time Allah experienced any kind of relationship, not that Allah is real, but the first time Allah had any relationship was when He created one. Which means to have a relationship, Allah has a need. He has to create something for Him to have a relationship. Totally the opposite of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are three in one. They have existed in community. They have existed in relationship. They have existed in the fullness of joy and fellowship that they have enjoyed in themselves for all eternity. When the God of the Bible creates people, He's not creating so He can have His first relationship. He's creating to spread the joy of having eternally been in a relationship. So when we talk about all roads lead to God, honestly, it's the kind of statement you'd only make if you'd never studied the other religions at all. But just even like a Google search on what Hindus and Mormons and Muslims actually believe makes it very clear that there can't be one road or all roads leading to one God because there's no common idea of what that God even is. Saying all roads lead to God is like saying all roads lead to New York and then getting in your car and driving to Miami and once you get to Miami, trying to convince yourself that you're really in New York. But if you've been to Miami, you know. It's like saying all roads lead to New York and then going to Cordon, Indiana. I was in Cordon, Indiana eating tacos this weekend. It is not New York City. It's a ridiculous statement. But on top of it being a ridiculous statement, just one more thing to say about it is this. I called all roads lead to God a half-truth. Why did I call it a half-truth? Well, I used to have an Iranian friend named Fariborz. still have an Iranian friend named Fariborz. We just haven't seen each other in years. 
And Faribors, who's gone on to be an Anglican, conservative Anglican pastor, would say to me, Ryan, all roads do lead to God. They just don't lead to the Father. And that's exactly right. There is no path through this life that doesn't lead to God. Every single person who's ever lived will meet with God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Every single person will face God, but they will face Him as God the judge, and they will face Him in judgment. There's only one path to meeting with God as Father. To have Him open, welcome you into heaven with fatherly arms. And that path is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is telling us here that He's he's a way to not just meet God in judgment on the last day, but He is a way to take you to God and to bring you to God as God's Son and God to be your Father. Second lie. Second lie that I find keeps people from embracing the fact that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life who leads us to the Father. Second lie. It's that this statement sounds insanely proud and exclusivistic. I mean, it just sounds crazy proud. I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet, almost. It's like 7.9 billion people. And we think we met the one guy who ever lived who has all the religious answers. And, and, and he lived at a time where there were religious teachers all over the place, and he has the audacity to step forward and say, I not know the way, but am the way and the truth, and the life, and there's no going to the Father unless you go by me. And you hear that in our pluralistic and relativistic age, and you think, what people on the planet have the proud audacity to think they're right above every single other person? And then you add to the fact that you meet sincere Muslims, or sincere Catholics, or sincere Mormons. You meet all kinds of sincere people all over the planet, and what's your message for them? You're wrong! You're not going to get to the Father. There's only one way to the Father. Which way? Jesus' way. No man comes to the Father, Jesus says, except by me. It just sounds like the most proud, insane thing you ever heard. It's actually the humblest statement that's ever been uttered. Because when Jesus says, I'm the way, what he's saying is, I would die to get you to heaven. Because the way he's talking about is not a big ego trip for him so that everybody says, yeah, you're awesome, Jesus, take us to the Father. It's Jesus saying, there's only one way, and that way is that I'll lay down my life for you. There's nothing proud about it. It's as humble as a statement could ever be. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's these I am statements. There's seven of them. You can read through the Gospel of John and just profitably wait for those words, I am. Jesus tells us seven times what he is. One of those I am statements is in John chapter 10, 
where he says, I'm the good shepherd. And then he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Sheep! Shepherds! You ever seen him in a field? Sheep are not equal to shepherds. Shepherds are radically aware of how foolish sheep are. Jesus says, here's the kind of shepherd I am. I die for people beneath me. I die for people who are less than me. Matthew and Mark say the same idea. Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now think about it. The proud people you know won't even get off the couch for you, let alone shed their own blood and end their earthly lives for you. This is not proud. These are the words of a humble man trying to show you the one way to get to God the Father, and you must have Him die for you. In 2018, 12 boys in Thailand got stuck in an underwater cave. Maybe you remember the story. The cave was not underwater when they went in, but after they had gone two and a half miles with their soccer coach into a cave, the rain came down and flooded the passageways they had been walking to so that they were stuck on a small elevated rock two and a half miles into the cave. Well, this became an international story. And 10,000 people were eventually involved in their rescue. But the first people who were involved were specialists, not just scuba divers, that's already a specialty, but underwater cave scuba divers. And eventually what happened is that two lead underwater cave scuba divers, John Volenthen and Richard Stanton, risked scuba diving all the way into the flooded cave they didn't even know the kids were there or alive at the bottom. They're just trying to see if they could find them. And they wound up getting all the way to these children two and a half miles in. And then they called other underwater scuba divers from all over the world who traveled to Thailand and rigged up a system where they would swim two and a half miles through an underwater cave system. If it sounds terrifying, you're hearing the story right. It was terrifying even to these experts. And they organized a system where they would get to the kids, sedate them, because nobody who doesn't have any scuba experience can do for their first dive at 12, the two and a half mile under the cave system dive. Come on, amateur, let's roll. Not a good first line. So they developed a system where they would sedate them, put masks on them, tie them to themselves, and then swim them two and a half miles underwater to safety. And they did it. Every single kid lived. Now can you imagine if those scuba divers get to those kids two and a half miles in and they say, now we've got to sedate you and get you under. There is no other way. And the kids say, that is the most arrogant thing I have ever heard. I was like, I just flew from Norway to get you a little pipsqueak out of here. <laughs> no, there is no other way. 
And if your problem is sin that you've violated, you've sinned against, you've rebelled against a holy God, if that's your problem, which it is, then what does Allah have for you? A plan where you can do a little better next year? What does Mormonism have for you? Yeah, yeah, the stake will provide you a date night and a pattern to increase your prosperity and then a pattern to give you a healthy family life. But what is there to get you out from under the wrath of a holy God? Nothing. Zilch. Absolutely nothing. These religions have nothing to say at the bedside of a dying man. But a Christian can walk into the bedside of a dying man and say, He is the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. But the reason He can get you to the Father is because He's the Son who dies for the sheep. It's not insanely proud. It's insanely humble. The third lie that keeps people from running to Jesus and trusting in the Father is this lie. Sincerity is all that matters. Sincerity is all that matters. This point's actually not too different from the first point. My first point was all roads lead to God. That's a lie. All roads lead to God. This point is sincerity is all that matters. The one comes at these issues from an objective point of view. I say all roads can lead to God. We showed how that's wrong. This comes at things from a more subjective point of view. Hey, as long as you're sincere, just be honest. Just be yourself. Just, just don't be a hypocrite. Just do your best. Just take the light you have and follow it sincerely. And eventually, things will turn out right for you when it comes to God. That's the lie. Sincerity is all that matters. And this is a big one right now. This is the lie of the cultural moment. I just got to be me. I just got to be true to myself. I just got to be attuned to who I feel I am or who I feel I was meant to be. And that will be my moral north star. And if I follow it, how bad can things get? In fact, if I follow it, it would be wrong of God not to receive me. I was born this way. So it would be a sin not to live this way. I just got to be sincere with who I am. And if I'm sincere, then everything will work out between me and God. But we need to take a long, hard look at sincerity. Because sincerity, as good as it is, and of course sincerity does have a tremendous place in Christianity. But we need to take a long, hard look at sincerity because sincerity by itself is vastly overrated. Let's just start with the hard sciences. Sincerity doesn't live well with the hard sciences. I used to have an engineering friend, and he would say, Ryan, I can draw a bridge as sincerely as I want. But if the math is wrong, the bridge is going down. You can believe that 2 plus 2 is 5. You do that thing. But I tell you what, at the bank, they aren't going to believe it. 2 plus 2 is always 4, 
And I don't care how sincerely you believe otherwise. But sincerity not only collides with the hard sciences, with math, uh, with engineering, but sincerity also collides with moral truth as well. Sincerity collides with moral truth as well. I think it's pretty clear if we look back at the history of World War II that there were Germans who believed that the Jews were ruining their country and were a plague on the earth. They sincerely believe that. It doesn't make them right. It makes them sincerely evil. There were slaveholders and non-slaveholders in the United States who believed that African Americans were not as intelligent as white folks and belonged in slavery. Many wrote theological justifications of their positions. They were sincere. They were sincerely wrong and at great cost, and a great wickedness. There are many white people now, who, or sorry, there are many people now who believe that slavery and racism is all tied to whiteness. I actually read about a church this week that's fasting from singing from songs from white people because they're fasting from whiteness. And you can believe that all slavery and all whiteness, all racism is from whiteness but history would prove you wrong. You might be sincere, but history will prove you wrong. The very name slave comes from all the Slavs of Eastern Europe who were being taken into slavery. You go back to the 1600s and you find stories of British folks who couldn't leave their children out because the Barbary pirates were capturing so many slaves off the coasts of England to sell them in North African slave ports. Now, I'm not telling you that story to make white supremacy okay. It's a vile sin. I'm not telling you that story to make racism and slavery okay. I'm just telling you that to say you can believe things historically, sincerely, but that doesn't mean they line up with the facts. It doesn't mean they line up with reality. Sincerity, it turns out, is not a great measure for scientific or moral truth. And according to the Bible, sincerity is actually a terrible gauge of religious truth. Sincerity is a terrible gauge of religious truth. The book of Proverbs says in this in 14, chapter 14, verse 12, listen to this verse from God's Word. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way, in death, is the way of death. There are all kinds of people who aren't terrified on their deathbeds. We can have this idea sometimes as Christians that everyone who's not a Christian goes to their deathbed terrified. Not true! Many go to their deathbeds assured. Having followed a way that seems right. They then collide with the reality of God after their last breath. Or think about Paul's words in Romans. Think about this from Romans chapter 10. These are some of those haunting verses to me in the whole Bible. These verses, if you're going to be a preacher, they, they got to drive you to study. Because listen to what these verses say. Brothers, my heart's desire 
And prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they be saved. So he's saying, I pray for my countrymen that they would be saved. Implication, they're not saved. Okay? I pray, my heart's desire is that they be saved. What does he say? I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, Seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you see what the picture Paul's painting here? Paul has fellow Jews, fellow countrymen, people he loves, moms, dads, fellow co-workers among the religious elite. He knows them. They have a zeal for God. They're not faking it. They're real. They actually have a hunger and a zeal for God. But it's not according to knowledge. They think you can establish a righteousness based on what you do. And as a result, they're ignorant of the righteousness that God gives through Jesus. And he doesn't say, so don't worry, they're saved. They're going to go to heaven. Because at the end of the day, all that God cares about is that you were sincere. No, salvation is not by sincerity. Salvation is by Christ. Salvation is not believing firmly. Salvation comes by believing rightly. And the reason sincerity is such an offense to God is because at the end of the day, sincerity says, whatever I declare to be true and firmly believe is right. And it rejects God's truth. It rejects Jesus saying, I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. Now let's just think for a minute in light of the sincerity about these statements quickly. The way Jesus speaks to us should call into question our commitment to sincerity. Think about what He calls Himself. He calls Himself the way. By stating this, He implicitly calls into question all other ways. He says, I am the truth. And by stating that, He's calling into question all of the truths. And then he says, I am the life. And by stating that, he's actually calling into question whether we actually have any life at all to even be seeking God. Think about how deep and piercing these words actually are. Jesus says, I am the way. Which means that if he's saying, I am the way, and the way is I die for you. The way is I shed my blood on the cross for you. The way is I take the death penalty for you. The way is the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the way. Well, if you say, that's nice, Jesus, but I'm going to figure something out for myself. I'm going to carve my own path. You're spitting on one who died for you. And then he says, I'm the truth. And what that means is that anything that contradicts him is a lie. And we are the craziest people when it comes to lies. Have you any, any of you parents found that your kids, they just, they're good at believing lies? There's like almost a gravitational pull towards the telling and even maybe convincing yourself of lies. 
But without Jesus, the whole human race is that way. We can look at history with its gulags and wars and brutal tyrannical forces, and we say human beings are basically good. And then we look at the world around us right now with its wars and abuse and people being sold into sex trafficking, and we say people are very good. And then we look at our homes where we see kids fighting and the adults not always being getting, able to get along, and we say people are very basically good. And then we delve down into our hearts and we find bitterness and covetousness and anger and malice. And we say, but the one thing I'm sure of is that people are basically good. Talk about staring the evidence in the face and closing your eyes. Jesus says, I'm the truth. And the truth is this. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. The truth is this. You are all of your father, the devil. John 8, chapter 44. The truth is, you're a sinner and you need me to be your way. And then last, and I'll, I'll close with this. He says, I'm the life. And honestly, beloved, this, this one got me. I hadn't, I'd never seen this so clearly before. When Jesus says, I'm the life, it's basically He's coming to us and says, you're not actually even a living person who could seek me. He's saying the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. That doesn't mean you don't breathe. It doesn't mean you don't smell. It doesn't mean you don't think. But it means in terms of responsiveness to God, you are as dead as a corpse. So the idea that Jesus could come along and say, hey, I've got a plan how you could be saved, assumes that He's talking to a living person. But He doesn't make that assumption. He actually assumes that He's talking to those who are spiritually dead with no responsiveness to God in their souls at all. And then He comes and meets their need. I'm the life. I'll actually give you spiritual life. I'll give you a way through my cross. I'll give you truth to beat down your lies. I'll give you life where you are spiritually dead. This is how Jesus saves us. He comes and does everything to reconcile us to the Father. In a world where many of us grew up fatherless, where some of us who did have fathers still have wounds from those fathers, He comes and brings us to the true Father. And He doesn't say, if you can just figure this out and do good for a little while, you can have a Father. He says, I did everything to bring you to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You follow Me, you get the Father. Emmanuel, how much ought we to cultivate those relationships, sort of that relationship with God, where we learn to follow Him as Father? And for those of you who are flirting with sinful ideas that would take you away from your families, or have you abandon your children, or your wife, you will make shipwreck in their lives by convincing yourself they don't need you present as a father. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you follow that lie, I need you to know this. You must be reconciled to God the Father through Christ the Son. You need the Father to help you father. Knowing Him as your father is what will give you the strength to stay put and be a father. And if you're here and you're like, I've been around Christianity, I've been around religion, or maybe I've known different things, or I thought I was being sincere, I thought all roads lead to God. 
I just encourage you to dispel those lies and look at this. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. If you trust Him, you will be God's child and God will be your eternal Father. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we ask You that You would please give us grace to trust in Christ and know the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.